morning. Let's hear it for these people leading us in worship. Man. I think of them like they're on point. They're the first ones that get shot up. Pray for them. Gus, I like your hair, by the way. Let it grow. Where you at? Let it keep growing. All right. Uh, let's see. There are budgets in the conference room. So if you'd like to take a peek at a budget to get a sneak peek, they're in the conference room. Go ahead and grab one of those. And uh, Chris, good job. The the parade, people keep asking me, what parade are we talking about? It's the one after Thanksgiving. So it's nighttime right downtown. If you get on board now, you can you can be on the float, right? You can have candy. You can't throw the candy because that might injure a child, but you can drop it on the ground. In front, like, like with birds, you can throw it on the ground. But uh, it's a lot of fun, so it's good to do that at least once. So Wednesday, 6 o'clock here at the church. Chris will be doing that. All right. Uh, fall is gone. Winter is here, right? It's Christmas, uh, holiday season. I'm already doing Christmas music, right? I put up my Twilight CD. I'm doing Christmas music only now. Well, that was a lot a lot better in the first service, Paul. Uh, so people are already sick of my music, but I, and I'll play it until probably March. So... Uh, Good time of the year. It's beautiful outside, right? All right, so I was at Solon this past week. I preached up there. Who knows where Solon is? You guys know where Solon Okay, good. Uh, brought the family, uh, ran into an old friend, right? Everywhere I go, I see this guy. Just like old times, he's sitting in the front over here on the right with a notebook, like a dirty look on his face. Just like, just brought back so many memories. Nice people up there. It's a small church. And I had some New Jersey flashbacks, I have to admit, all right? So... If you're not aware, I was a pastor in New Jersey before I came here, and uh, they said, hey, we, we need someone to come in and change things, shake things up. And I said, I'm, I'm your guy. So I showed up, I started changing things, and they said, whoa, we don't want any more change. Stop, time out, no more change. It's exactly what PB told me would happen, precisely. Then I was more like a wrecking ball from that point on. Uh, and I want to share a few things that happened while I was there. Uh, not for sympathy, okay? We're we're way beyond that. But to illustrate what led me to end up in a in a a place of despair in my ministry as a pastor called by God to serve these people at this church. About two weeks in, I was told I was a terrible preacher, which is back then for sure a lot worse than I am now. You guys got it so good compared to to back then. Uh, then they told me I was also a terrible pastor. And they topped that off with, hey, you're also a, per- a terrible person. It's like the trifecta. And then the patriarch of the church brought me to his house. He was a millionaire. Had a brand new Russian wife he ordered. Showed me around the house. <laughs> brought me upstairs to his closet. And I kid you not, this is when it got creepy, right? But it, the, his office is as big as Pastor Gary's. Uh, his, his closet is as big as Pastor Gary's office. You ever seen Gary's office? It's huge, right, Brent? It's huge. He had like 150 suits, and he had one on a stand, really nice, brand-new gray suit. And he said, hey, do you like that? I said, sure. I just want to get out of the closet, right? And, and he said, that's for you. Take it and wear it if you're going to preach in our church on Sundays. I took it, but I didn't wear it. First month, I was chastised for opening the curtains because that lets the sun in. 
and the sun will fade the carpets. So we had a meeting about that. Then I ordered two books, and we had a meeting about that because that's not in the budget. I was yelled at for changing the roadside sign, kind of like the one we have, but a smaller version, which isn't too bad, except it was when I was walking from my seat to the pulpit on a Sunday morning. I got about right there, and a lady grabbed me and and gave me the business, the dressing down right there in front of the whole church, slightly awkward. Got in trouble for inviting people to the church for Easter that weren't from the church because those are outsiders. If my wife starts twitching, just keep an eye on her over there because she was with me the whole time. I was ambushed every Sunday from the first one until the last one. Every business meeting, they were pros. It was fantastically, and it was unbelievable how good they were. Uh, and as, a, as attendance increased, complaints increased tenfold, at least. Now, I was never thrown in jail. I was never beaten. I was never hit. No one ever grabbed me. Many, many worse things happened to me in the military. But as a minister, as a pastor, this anger and this angst and this attitude and this, this hatefulness led me to a place of despair, misery, depression. I was a failure. I consider myself 100% failure. And then when things were as bad as I thought they could possibly be, it was turned into joy. Just like that. The misery, the depression, the failure was gone. And I'm going to tell you how that happened at the end of the, at the, end of the sermon, because I don't want you guys to fall asleep now and miss it. You will not believe how this happened. All right. Switch gears. If you've ever mentored or discipled someone, raise your hand for me real quick. Don't be shy. Just throw your hand up. Okay, good. If you have ever been mentored or been discipled, put your hand up. All right. Uh, perfect. So I mentioned I was in despair and God fixed it. Okay, I didn't fix it. I couldn't do anything. God fixed it. And we're going to see exactly what happens to Paul in today's passage, okay? And I'm going to submit to you that when you mentored someone or when you discipled someone, that was God working through you, using you to reach someone else, to maybe, maybe to pull them up out of despair, to help them along. And when someone mentored you, someone discipled you, it's the same thing. It's God using that person to reach out to you, to, to pull you up, to help you out. Maybe to pull you out of despair. And the point is God was alive and active and working with people during Paul's day, right? During the early church. No one would disagree with that, right? Well, guess what? He's doing the same thing today. God is alive and active. He's working in our lives. He's working in your life, Sam. I know you're paying attention. He's working in, Sean, he's working in your life. He's working in George's life. He's working in everyone's life. And when you leave here today, I want you to realize, I want you to understand that the things going on in your life, it's not chance. There's no such thing as chance. It's God working in your life. You just have to recognize it. We have to realize that's what's going on. Once you do recognize it, once you realize God's working in your life, everything changes, right? That's when everything, when you get that, that's when things change. When you realize not only is God with you, 
And he's working, but he's on your side. He's got your back. Changes everything. Today's passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to start on verse 2. We're at the halfway point of this letter. It's 13 chapters, we're at 7, so we're a little bit over the halfway point. After today, Paul's going to move on from the relationship-fixing part. He's going to move on to things like false apostles and visions and cheerful givers and things of that nature. But today he's going to make one last inroad, one last incursion into this relationship part. And he starts verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. So here Paul's just he's reaffirming his appeal to the people at Corinth uh, to, for their friendship, for their love, for their affection. He says, remember, you can trust us. You can trust me. Again, he's saying this. You can have confidence. We're your friends. We love you. We would never and have never done anything to hurt you, to bring you pain, to harm you. And when Paul says, this is the interesting part, Paul says, we have confidence in you, we would live or die with you. What he's saying is very similar to something he says in Romans, uh, just on a bigger, on a smaller scale today. But you'll remember this when, when I put it up. Paul says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, this passage is about God and his people. This Nothing can separate people, you, who are saved from God. Not sin, not demons, not bad people, not even death can separate us from God. That's why we say things like once saved, always saved. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? If you do, it's one of the foundations of our hope and joy. It's the foundation. We know that we are God's. We know he's got our back. We know he's going to take care of us. We know where we're going to end up. That's the freedom that we have in Christ. You hear people talk about the freedom we have in Christ. That's the freedom. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Hallelujah, we are saved. And in today's verse, verse 4, we would live or die with you. Paul's saying something very similar on a smaller scale, on a personal scale. He's saying nothing will dissolve, nothing will separate, nothing will take away my love and affection for you, church at Corinth. This is a notion that every pastor, really anyone in ministry, has to come to terms with. To love the people, even when they don't love you back. Even when they don't want anything to do with you. That's because we're serving God. We're not serving man. We're interacting with people, but we're serving God. And if you cannot stand to be around people... If your love for them is conditional, something's wrong. 
I mean, the entire 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians explains this. If you're you're a ministry leader, if you're a pastor and you don't love, you don't have love, you have what? Nothing. You got nothing. Paul literally wrote the book on that concept. And he loved his people. He continues his letter, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Now, at this point, Paul's calling to mind some of his movements, his travels, his journey, and some of his afflictions. And he arrives at Macedonia. And if you're thinking, where's Macedonia? Ask Tim and, uh, Tim and Karen Valentine. That's where they lived for the last five years, right? Kosovo, Albania, Serbia, Greece. Uh, that's where they were at. And Paul doesn't go into great detail here uh, regarding the afflictions. But they must be pretty bad. Must be pretty bad if he's struggling with this from within and from without. And you don't really use the word affliction unless something bad's going on, right? You don't come home and say to your wife, honey, my, I was afflicted today at work. Just, it's reserved for something really bad. Now, you might remember at the beginning of this letter, Paul wrote about the troubles that he had, that he and his helpers experienced. And he wrote, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We despaired of life itself. That sounds really bad, right? It is really bad. Despair is a complete loss or absence of hope. Complete loss, total loss of hope. The Greek word Paul uses here is exoporeo. And the meaning, I want you to get this, all these Greek words have a range of meanings, from usually from not so bad to really bad or not so good to really good. Here's the range. Utter loss, no way out. There's no good anywhere in there. There's no better. It's all bad. It's really as bad as things can possibly get. That's what he's trying to convey here. Now, you may know someone that's mildly depressed. You may know someone that's, that's moderately depressed or hurting Someone in pain and it's bad, right? But when you're, when you interact with someone who's in despair, you can almost feel the lack of hope. Can't you? I'm seeing heads nod. You can, you can, it's almost, it's oppressive. You can feel the oppression with someone like this. And if you've seen it or you've gone through this, you know what I'm talking about. Paul's basically saying we felt doomed. They weren't just having a tough season of ministry like I did. They weren't saying, hey, the sun's going to come out tomorrow. It's a new day. We'll be okay. They could not fix their despair. They could not dig themselves out. That's how dark things were. So what was going on that was so bad? Well, fortunately, Paul lists some of the things that happened to him that made him feel despair. Here's what he wrote. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my fellow Jews, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea, and danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. 
I don't know what you could add to this list to make it worse. I don't think you can make it worse. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes times one. In in the Old Testament law, if someone needed to be beaten, you could beat them up to 40 times. If you went over, that was your sin. So the Jewish people that were very good at legalism, they just knocked one off. They said, you can beat them right up to 39. That way, if you get overzealous or if you lose count, you don't go over 40. Five times they did that to Paul. And then three times I was beaten by rods. That's the same thing. It's just That's just a good old-fashioned Roman beating. It's just a different group of people doing the beating at this point. It's really the same thing. They would just grab a rod, think uh, like a fishing rod, a long, flexible rod, and just beat you on the back with it or the front. If you ever saw the movie The Passion of the Christ, then you have an idea of how brutal this was. Don't think spanking like I swatted my child with a, with a switch. This is a beating. It's a mauling. It's a bashing. It's caused to inflict as much pain as humanly possible. And Paul was maimed. He was disfigured because of this. He says so in Galatians. He writes, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Scars. He's talking about scars. Typically, one lash equaled one scar. And from the Jews alone, he had over 195 lashes. So I'm assuming that three times with the Romans, that was more than five. So he has well over 200 scars on his back. So if you ever think, I wonder what Paul looked like. Don't forget the scars. And when Paul says, I was once pelted with stones, in biblical times, that meant the Jews were trying to kill you. It was a death penalty. It was a death sentence. You remember we talked about Achan a few weeks back who stole some stuff and they got his whole family together and all his animals and his goats and everything and stoned them. It's a death penalty. Paul survived. He continues, three times I was shipwrecked and I had danger from robbers and danger from people and danger from Gentiles and danger, 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 danger. And the point is from, from, from the moment he woke up to the, pretty much actually even when he was asleep, Paul was in constant danger constant danger he had no rest he couldn't let his guard down it's a it's a fascinating look at some of the specific punishments and calamities and dangers that paul faced we would call these persecution and when you see the list and you think about it it makes sense that he despaired of life itself they were facing such real and serious challenges i mean i was in despair in my ministry. Nobody ever touched me. No one ever hurt me. I just had a group of old church veterans who couldn't stand me. They let me hear about it as often as they could. I was new. The seminary told me this would happen. I just wasn't ready for this to happen at the first place I went to and by people in the church. And I told someone uh, between services, New Jersey people, they are awesome. It was the church people who were so rotten. God bless them. But Paul and his friends, 
Man, they were fighting for their lives day and night. This was real persecution. They had a foot in the grave, and they entered despair. And it reminds me of a sign. Before you enter hell in Dante's Inferno, there's a sign above the gate to hell, and it says, All hope abandoned, ye who enter here. Consequently, if you do enter hell when you die because you refuse to allow Christ to save you, if you refuse to humble yourself before God, if you deny your need for a Savior, if you refuse to acknowledge that God sent his Son here to take your sins to the cross and die for you and be buried for you and be risen again for you, if you refuse all of that and you end up in hell, at that point you can abandon all hope. There will be no hope for you beyond that point. Don't let that happen. Trust, trust Jesus as your Savior before you leave here today while you do have a chance. Otherwise, there is no hope for you. Back to the sermon. When Paul despaired of life itself, when he had all he could take, when he was at the end of his line, when he could take no more, God did not forget him. Amen? God did not forgive him. God was active. God was engaged. God was right there. He had his plans. God had his back. God had Paul's back. Here's what we read. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still the more. So, so God comforts Paul three, three ways. The first one is he sends Titus back to Paul. Who's Titus? Titus is a, a Gentile. We learned that in Galatians. Uh, Titus is a, a convert. Paul, Paul led uh, Titus to the Lord. He's a helper. He's a disciple. Um, he's kind of the quintessential born-again Christian back in that time period. He's on fire for the Lord, and he was trustworthy and dependable. Some of the letters we have in our Bible were delivered to churches by Titus. It's fantastic. And Paul loved Titus, and that alone lifted his spirits. Are your spirits not lifted when you see someone at Christmas that you haven't seen for a while? Doesn't that lift your spirit? Not everybody, right? Sometimes it doesn't lift your spirit, but usually if it's someone you love, spirits are lifted. When I was deployed in the military, I'd be gone for two weeks or two months or eight months, whatever. When I came home, what lifted my spirits was seeing her. It wasn't finishing what I was doing wherever I was at. It was seeing her. Then later, it was when I would come home and see her and the kids, but mostly her. <laughs> lifted my spirits right up. That's what did it. And God knows that. That's why he sent Titus to lift Paul's spirit. The second way... God is comforted that Titus was comforted. They took care of him. They looked after him. They respected him. They loved him. They trusted him. And that restores Paul's hope and his confidence. And the third thing is Titus relays to Paul. He says, Paul, these people miss you, man. They love you. They're not mad at you. They're excited for you. They're, they're sad that they can't see you sooner. All that stuff that happened before... It's done. These people are with you. Everything is fine. And this is all it takes. And Paul's despair is relieved and it's replaced with joy. Paul knows. He's reminded, God is with me. Titus is with me. 
the whole church at Corinth is with me, I don't really have any grounds to, to remain in despair. But I have a lot of grounds to be joyful. And Paul rejoices. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's amazing. Titus. Titus. Do you have a Titus? Yeah, I bet you do. Have you ever thought about that? Who is your Titus? I think sometimes, I know I think of like Titus and Timothy as kind of lesser, lesser players in the game. They're not so high as Paul or Peter or John, Mark, whoever. And sometimes in life we think of people maybe that we've helped in the past or someone we'd have a, that we've discipled or whoever as, dare we say, lesser, maybe, kind of satellite figures in our life. But God doesn't seem to have, have looked at Titus that way. God used this lesser individual to raise Paul up, to lift his spirits. So who is your Titus? Back to New Jersey. I was just done with a three-hour beatdown in my office where I was reminded how terrible I was. And I was tough, man. I was tough. Thanked them all for coming. They walked out the door, and I completely lost it. The instant that door clicked into place, I was done. I was slobbering on the ground, rolling around, miserable, draped across a chair, begging God to help me because I was absolutely at my wit's end. I had nothing left. I'd, it, was, it was the lowest I've ever been in ministry. I threw myself on God's mercy, and I said, God, do whatever you want with me. Send me to Africa. Send me to back to the DR. Send me. I don't care where you do or what you want me to do, but I can't do this. I have no idea what to do next. Then I went home. A few nights later, at around 8.30 at night, someone knocked on the door at our house. And if that happens in New Jersey you don't, and you don't know anybody, that's not a good thing. Okay? So I kind of did the, you know. There was a Hispanic guy named Dan. I'd never seen him. He said, are you the new pastor of that church? And I said, yeah. He said, I, I came to this church a year or two ago, and it just wasn't really good timing, but I'm back now. How can I help you? And I let him in at that point. And he stayed till probably 2 in the morning, and he came to church on Sunday. And then, the next week, a Cuban man. I never knew a Cuban man before. His name was Joel. He came to my house. He brought his wife and two kids. And they stayed till middle of the night. When I got done unloading on Joel, he said, I think I'm going to help you. He happened to be a worship leader. Swore to his wife on the drive to my house he would never be in ministry again. And when he said, I'm going to help you, his wife stopped the conversation. She said, wait a minute, Joel. Remember this? Didn't you say we're not going to help? And he said, no, we, we have to help. We have to help. And he was there. On Sunday. And then God sent Sue, who was a, a Tasmanian devil wrecking ball, awesome lady who, who left the church 20 years ago, and she came to church. And then God began to send people to the church. The rest of that year we built and we built, and God restored everything. So we started off with eight people. After my first sermon, we were down to four. Hmm? More family than people in the church. At the end of one year, we had 75 people. Today, the church is full. 
up to 400 people. Go ahead and clap. You can clap for that. But do not think for an instant that I was successful. Wasn't even close to being me. God used me. And God used those people. It was all God. It was 100% God. But the point is God brought me out of my despair by bringing these people into my life after I humbled myself to him. He encouraged me. Same thing that happened with Paul. Paul got Titus. Paul got Timothy. Paul got Corinth. I got Dan and Joel and Sue. And a bunch of oddballs from that area that came to this church. God will encourage you. I'm a believer. I saw it with my own eyes. I would not have believed it if I didn't see it. It was uncanny. Now, Paul could have just said when, when Titus showed up, Titus, that's it? This doesn't help me. I could have said, Dan, who is Dan? He's not a pastor. <laughs> who is Joel? But God uses who he will, when he will, in whatever manner he chooses. Sometimes it's the person we least expect, isn't it? We least expect. So let me ask you again, who is your Titus? I don't want you to miss out on the encouragement that can come from your Titus. Maybe it's your son or your daughter or a co-worker, someone from a small group five years ago, someone you discipled ten years ago. Maybe someone you think doesn't have much to offer. But they come and they offer you encouragement to raise you up if you're wise enough to listen. So I want you to go find your Titus this week. He just might save your life. He just might save your ministry. He might save your walk or your marriage or your job. Don't miss out because you're waiting for a pastor or a prophet or some lofty individual to come help you. But you fail to recognize this little person that God sends just for you. There was a group of frogs walking through the jungle. <clears throat> you knew it was coming, right? Tree frogs. They're not good on the ground. Two of them fall in a hole. And they're jumping up and down, trying to get out of this hole. All the other tree frogs surround this hole and say, you're not getting out of there. You can't jump that high. You're going to die. Just give it up. And they keep jumping and jumping. And the, the ones up here keep yelling, you're not going to make it. You're going to die. And finally, one of them gives up. Falls on his back and dies. But the other frog keeps jumping, keeps trying, keeps pushing, and they keep yelling and they're slobbering and spitting and everything's terrible. He keeps jumping and finally he manages to, I would say, claw his way out, but they don't have claws on what they're called. He suctioned his way out. <laughs> and all the frogs gather around him. They're very close and they're like, why did you keep going? Why didn't you listen to us? We told you you couldn't do it. Why did you keep going? And he said, I'm deaf. I couldn't see what you were saying. I thought you were encouraging me the whole time. <laughs> My friends, God will send help. He will send encouragement. You have to look for it. You have to watch for it like they say in kids' church. Watch for God. It probably, be, it probably won't be in a form that you're expecting because his ways are not our ways. But he will encourage you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for everything you do for us. Thank you for the air we breathe. Thank you for holding our bodies together 
Every moment of our existence is because of you. Thank you for sending your son to die for us so that we can live, so that we're not doomed, so that we have to abandon all hope. Remind us, Father, our hope is in you. It's not in anything else. Any hope that's not in you is false hope. Remind us of that, Lord. Send us an encourager. Encourage us however you know that we need to be encouraged, Lord. Remind us to look for you and to watch for you because you are alive in our lives. Remind us that you care about us and you're with us every moment of every day. Thank you, Lord, for our Titus. We have many Tituses. Thank you for letting us be a Titus to someone else. Lord, we praise you. We praise your name. We praise you for everything you do for us. Bless everyone in this room, Lord. Until we meet again, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.